Hello, my name is Dave Lewis, and I am the host of Cinemillennials, a podcast where myself and another millennial watch a classic film we haven't seen before, ranging from the early 1900s to the late 1960s, and discuss its significance and relevance in our world today. On today's episode of Cinemillennials, I talked with Matt Duffy from Real Gold Rundown on Instagram and TikTok where we talked about a film that transformed visual effects and the medium of animation forever, 1933's King Kong. Spielberg, Jackson, Del Toro, and even Shigeru Miyamoto all would admit to the fact that their careers would have never reached the heights that they have gained if they had never been exposed to the enticing and soul-searching phenomenon that is King Kong. Whether it's revolutionary stop-motion animation, its introduction of the original Scream Queen, or its ascent to the top of the Empire State Building, King Kong is arguably one of the most influential pieces of media of all time. King Kong follows the story of adventure filmmaker Carl Denham, who stumbles upon a down-on-her-luck actress Anne Darrow, and brings her on the trip and terror of a lifetime. After inappropriately interacting with the indigenous peoples on their destination, Anne is kidnapped and then sacrificed to the horrific beast that is Kong. For the past 90 years, King Kong has captured audiences both young and old as it poses so many questions. So sit back, relax, try to answer the question, was it truly beauty that killed the beast? Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. What was the first film you saw in theaters, and what are your favorite films at the moment? It's got to be Toy Story 2. Yeah. They're crazy, right? It I feel like people at our age, it's always a, a Disney movie or some <laughs> kind of animated is. film. Yes, and I distinctly remember certain scenes from it. It's funny because I think, I feel like my sister, who's younger than me, was with me too, and she was crying, and I remember one of my parents taking her out and, so, and I just reverted my eyes back to the movie, watching Woody, watching Buzz and Jesse. And yeah, that's that's gotta be my, the first memory I have in a movie theater. And I used to go all the time as a kid too. It is such a great film. It's still so highly rated. It's like on par with Citizen Kane on IMDb or uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which is wild to me. Disney is really where a lot of us start uh, our movie going experiences. And you know what I think is great too, is I, I personally think Toy Story 2 is on par with Toy Story, the original. Yeah. It's kind of this like Godfather part two, Godfather <laughs> akin kind of sense to it. I was about to say the same thing. People are so divided on either Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2, but it's, it's amazing that they were able to do another home run after that revolutionary animation they did. They're like, all right, we'll do it again a couple of years later. Some of my favorite films of the moment, off the top of my head, one that I can think of is The Wolf of Wall Street, mm. which crazy enough is 10 years ago. I've been seeing so many clips of it online that I just remember that when I saw it, I was like, this movie's awesome. Just the way Scorsese directs this story it's this tale it's almost like a tale of like greed gone bad where like you start to root for jordan in the beginning but by the end of the movie you're like this guy is garbage 
<laughs> and it just, the whole symbolization of wealth and excess in, in the 90s, the whole thing, I just, Leonardo DiCaprio's great and Margot Robbie, what a, what a beginning of a career that she had with that role to where she is now with Barbie. It's just, it's great. I was just thinking about that. I was like, it's amazing to see where she went from as a Australian soap opera kind of star to yeah. being part of the first billion dollar film to cross that billion dollar threshold with a woman director and producer. So you run Real Gold Rundown on Instagram and TikTok, yes. where you share fun facts about classic films, their stars, and just old Hollywood in general. What got you into old Hollywood, and what are your favorite old Hollywood films? I started watching classic films with my grandmother. She used to watch me sometimes, and she would always have TCM on. And one of my distinct memories is I remember watching Singing in the Rain with her. I was just enamored with not only the music, but Gene Kelly and his relationship with Debbie Reynolds in the film, Donald O'Connor, and the whole spectacle of making a movie. And I was just entranced into this world. And watching more of these films, I get this feeling of not only belonging, but just being in this magical place, this idea of film that can captivate and take you away from your problems, your issues, and just really sit with the film and just enjoy it. And so through that, I had started um, watching more films. And in college, I was a bit of a cinema studies minor. So my friend had given me a list of films and was like, these are some of the films you have to watch. And through that, I started watching more classic films and it just kind of grew on me where I just fell in love with these movie stars and these stories. And I wanted to share my passion for these stars, these movies and old Hollywood in general. When I started Real Gold Rundown, one of my first initiatives was that I wanted to educate people on why these films matter. Like there's a reason why they're called classics. There's a reason why films from now take the tropes from the films of 90 years ago that started it all. And to me, I just think it's so rewarding just to share that information and share these films with people. I don't want to gatekeep them. I want more people to see them. And I want more people not to be afraid to watch these films. For me, it's almost like a goal people are just so adverse to watching older films just because they're black and white, just because they're longer, just because they're silent. And mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people are completely missing so many important points. Yes, the, of course, there's going to be always negative stereotypes. There's going to be negative things that mm -hmm. we have learned from, that we have progressed forward into the into our the world we have today. And yes, we still need to work on a lot of things. But there are so many lessons that we can learn from these classic films, who wrote them, why they wrote them. And I think a lot of people like us really find these films through TCM, through our grandparents, sitting there, watching with them, seeing how much they enjoy and how much it really means to them to kind of escape into their youth when they first saw the film. Part of Cinema Millennials is try to connect with the older generation and also learn from the older generation in order to have a better world. Why did you pick King Kong? I'm always looking at decades. Like I'm always trying to find a reason to 
celebrate some of these celebrities and films. And I know King Kong is going to be 90 this year. And then I knew there was a bit of a history with it in the making of it and the reaction to it. And so for me, it was kind of just a way to be like, now's my time. I want to sit with it. I want to watch it. I want to talk about it. And I want to share it with people. I think it's one of the most accessible films for someone that wants to start to get into classic films because it is such a rollicking good time. It's action. It's melodrama. It's a short film. It, it's only like around like an hour, 30, 40 ish. It's not too serious. King Kong is a lot of what we are used to growing up in the 90s and the 2000s um, and even later where you have things that are essentially things that have been picked up from King Kong's example and put into everything now today. So what did you think of the film overall? I actually really enjoyed it. I was not expecting a lot of it. Everyone has seen that iconic, like the last 10 minutes where he's on mm -hmm. top of the Empire State Building. And to me, I was not expecting the whole jungle aspect to be so much of it. It was interesting just to see Carl Denham and his crew go into this almost a magical exotic world that they've never seen before. And you're almost entrenched in it. You're living with them as they're trying to find Kong. And I just really enjoyed that part of it and all the different adventures that went on as they're trying to capture Kong. It, all these symbolism, these themes were just coming out at me. And I was like, yeah, this is a great. There's so much to be said about this movie. I don't even know how long how long we could actually go on this for. It's gonna it could be hours long, but it won't be. Although it's revolutionary with its technical achievements, the stop motion can sometimes be a little bit jarring. But I think with that sloppiness to it, it's just as raw and graphic as some films that are made today. It it is so fun because it is this big adventure. It is the ultimate. Guys like uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were inspired by these yeah. B-serial movies that would not have happened, and we'll get into it later, that would not have happened without Kong. Not only because of its storylines and its inspirations, but also because of its vibe, if you want to say. It, its <laughs> formula. It's formulaic in its, in its nature. With how raw it is, it still holds up. Do you agree with that? That because of how raw and graphic it is, it's still something that could be shown to a younger audience today. A hundred percent, that raw and graphic feel of it. To me, it makes it more real. It's not this CGI graphic that we're used to. And for me, it just adds to the layers of Kong in the way that he moves around and interacts with the humans. There's a real grittiness to it. It's important for modern viewers not only see the beginnings of where we are in special effects, but also just to see how it can be done. It still can be done. I think that's mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest lessons from King Kong is that, yes, although it is sloppy and it is kind of all over the place, you know it's a puppet. But, you know, things are still really great with stop motion animation. A lot of this stuff has progressed over time. What was your first experience with stop motion? and? How did it affect you watching this film? Could you see the progression from King Kong to the movies that we love today? Probably like The Nightmare Before Christmas. There's just something about it that adds a kind of magical whimsy to the storytelling that become enraptured with. And I think you can even say the same for King Kong. 
just the way that he moves around and the way he, like I said before, he, he interacts with the humans. It's kind of like it's gripping, but at the same time, it adds a little flavor to it. So I'm also going to mention this, which I think you also might have grown up with, which could be your first experience with stop motion without actually realizing it. So mine was most likely the Rankin-Bass Christmas movies that were on all the time on TV growing up. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, oh Santa Claus gosh, has come to right. town. Right, right, right? Oh my gosh, I totally didn't even think of that. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're, they're all cult classics in their own right. I still watch them annually uh, around Christmas time. I love time. them. They bring so much joy and so much fun to the holidays. And Rankin-Bass even referenced Kong in their Mad Monster series. But I feel like with our generation anyway, that Kong has always loomed large in our collective mindset. I mean, I remember as a kid growing up, pounding my chest over and over and over again, uh, you know, because, I don't know, because inherently that was something that we grew up on. But then, of course, you get one of the most recognizable characters in all of media, Donkey Kong. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, people putting two and two together. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, this is this is why we do the show. This is why the show is here is to connect us with these great moments of our childhood to realize not everything is brand new when we first see it. Yeah, I still can't get over that Rankin and Bass stuff. I mean, that's amazing. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh, definitely. That's probably my first memory. Definitely, King Kong was the last movie. I saw in theaters for lockdown. Really? And I saw it for the first time in the theater, and it was just on a big screen. I can't, I can't imagine what you know, what you would have felt like seeing it on a big screen. It was so unreal, un unlike oh anything I've God. seen before. And I love stop motion. I love the history of stop motion. And I knew how important Kong was. But to see it on the big screen really does make a difference because it was made for the big screen. It's that argument Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve and a couple other directors are saying today. These things are made for the big screen. And King Kong is definitely made for the big screen. And the person behind Kong's character, you know, the grittiness to him – the visceralness of Kong was this guy named Willis H. O'Brien. He's a legend in stop motion animation. He's considered the grandfather of American stop motion in that he animated the first feature length stop motion film, which this title will also remind you of something, The Lost World. And, and for what's work inspired down the road and even pushed the medium further with his work on Kong, both the unreal and the realistic quality of this movie is really all down to his work because he was able to add together in all these old techniques like glass paintings, matte paintings, and miniatures all within the camera so that the world looks super realistic. Like when you saw a couple of the times there was these kind of hidden little uh, pockets throughout the screen where the actors are were, where the actors yeah. were and where the rest of it was. Explain to me how you felt when you saw that. I noticed that in the film, like a lot of the scenes where Kong has Anne in the cave and he's fighting the dinosaurs, you can tell like there are scenes, it's almost like it was like, is that a dummy? Or it's like, <laughs> is, like, it was like, is that, the, like, why is one part of the screen lighter than the other? I was like, is this how they did it? I was like, holy cow. It blew my mind. It was just so awesome. Imagine someone thinking of that and then doing it. It was like, wow. I want to see like a whole group of people like us seeing it for the very first time in a theater and to see what their reactions were, because I think that's one of the most 
important things about this film is because people think of it as one thing. You know, it's a B-serial kind of thing. It's fun. It's goofy. Of course, you can understand some of the uh, ways, like, for example, when they're walking around one of the monsters, one of the, the dinosaurs, it's clearly them on a rear projection and they're on a yeah. treadmill. But then the other ones are just so like, how do you wrap your head around it? But it's all because he used this new version of a classic rear projection technique where he could insert the animated footage behind the actors, allowing them to react to the images seen. And then it also enabled like a reverse rear projection so they mm -hmm. could put the footage on miniature screens so you could have both the stop motion puppet interact with the actor and vice versa. So it's like the whole part of where there was a, one of the crew people on the ship. He's in this like kind of little pocket and Kong is up above him. But there's something there's a, a giant monster coming from underneath him on this vine. And you can see him interact with that. While at the yeah. same time, Kong is trying to reach into uh, the cave that he's hiding in. And it, it, it's so interesting how in depth this film is and how really technically sound and revolutionary it is it, it, it's a complete marvel in its own right back when it first came out and it still is today because there are so many things like one of the first things that was put into my mind was when you look at the little things in the original star wars trilogy and even later where you have these little kind of pockets of the ships that you're seeing in a wide shot but you're seeing people moving up and down and having different interactions in those scenes where something else is bigger going on they're in the ship you can see them actually in the ship and that's where you get this from it, it's so cool that 90 years later we're able to see these kind of things and be like how the heck did they do this i 100 percent agree what did you feel about the puppets in general of kong did you get a sense of how people could Think about this as being a possibility in 1933 about how this ape could do as much destruction as, or as it does in the film itself. One of the interesting things is when I was watching it, I think because of the nature of the film and just Kong, mm -hmm. I was like just fully immersed in his scenes that half the time I was like, okay, that looks like it's a puppet. But then the other half I was like, this is nuts. I was just fully watching the movie. I didn't even think about it. But for the parts of where it was like, oh, this is a puppet. I could see people just being bewildered by the spectacle of it all that they wouldn't even think of it as a puppet. Like that's that's what I was thinking when I half the time I was watching the film is that I couldn't believe it was a puppet because I was so like because of the rawness of the way he's designed. It was just you were so fully connected to him. And then and those scenes were like where he's climbing on top of the Empire State Building. All I could think about was like, how did they do this? And I was so curious about like, when I looked it up, he was 18 inches. So I'm thinking to myself, how did they film that? And it was just, to me, it was another one of those things where I'm like, I'm just amazed. I was truly just awe dropped, like everything. I was like, this is just, I felt like I was witnessing like the birth of something. And it was just, I wanted to know, how do they do it? How do they pull it off? It is such a immersive film. And that's because all of the actors don't feel like they're actors. They feel like mm -hmm. they're living it. Each of these actors are absolutely legendary from this movie. But I think one of the most important characters for this film is actually Denim. 
Denim is based mm-hmm. off of Marion C. Cooper, the one that was the brain and brawn behind the creation of Kong. He was a real-life adventurer, innovator for civic aviation, a war hero, and kind of like this very loose documentarian. He and um, his partner before this, Shozak, were adventurers, essentially. They were essentially like the same fabric of the same cut of Teddy Roosevelt. So he has this experience like Denim. He's he's so focused on this. And he was inspired by a book his uncle gave him called Adventures in Equatorial Africa. And it discussed these giant gorillas that apparently dragged women away from their villages and then imagined while he was walking up and down Manhattan for different meetings, a giant gorilla being shot down by biplanes on, I think, the insurance building at first and then changed yeah, it to New York Empire. Life. Faye Ray is uh, the actress that plays Anne Darrow. Mm-hmm. What did you think? about her and Denim and what other characters stood out to you? Faye Ray, the original Scream Queen. Um, I I really enjoyed them in their roles. To me, personally, I thought Faye Ray was the standout. Mm. Just because of the story behind her character in that when we first meet her, she's this, this desperate, wanton woman who just grasps at the chance to star in this film that Carl Denham is offering her, but she has no qualms. He's kind of just given her a minimum about what it's about. And you almost feel for her because it's like, oh, like she's just so desperate. But at the same time, you can sense the excitement and the adventure in her eyes that you're just, you go along with her on the ride. And Robert Armstrong plays Carl Denham. And he is great too, because he almost gives you this kind of gruff kind of, giving it all kind of personality throughout the film is that he's so determined to make this film that later on in the film, when they're escaping Kong and he goes, oh, we got to get him. And everyone's like, are you crazy? You're half the time you're like, oh, he's crazy. But at the same time, you remember his instincts, his motive of why he's doing it. And you're almost like, I mean, it's justified. He's got to finish that film. There is, there's nothing without Kong. And I just really enjoyed the two of them, the way they kind of interacted, but also the way that Faye Ray interacts with Bruce Cabot, who plays Jack, who's basically her love interest. And how in the beginning they have this kind of like, oh, we don't like each other. And as they're spending time on the ship, it grows into this blossoming romance to where he's basically saving her from Kong on the jungle and in Manhattan. So I really liked how the three of them kind of worked as this big trio. And it's kind of them against Kong in the end. I completely agree with you about Fei Ray. She really elevates it with her reactions to Kong. And, you know, that kind of reminds me of how these actors immerse themselves so much into this role that they become other people. Because, you know, Mm -hmm. for a lot of these things, and especially now I think today – and as you get older in general, as I, you know, I feel with my experiences watching movies, knowing who the actors are behind the characters, you see more of the actors' faces and not characters. Does that yeah. make sense? Like, like you see more of the actor doing their acting kind of thing, doing their job essentially, rather than actors finding themselves and really delving to the role where they change themselves completely without makeup without makeup it does not transfer over as much as it used to and i think that's another great thing about king kong that it does feel so authentic and so real because unless you have experience with fey ray and other iconic films that she's in 
you're not going to know who these people are. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of made me think about this idea of and how he talked about earlier that these actors were able to a make it feel real b accurately react to something that wasn't that was there but wasn't at the same time especially with the projected the rear projected images it, it brought to mind sir ian mccallan with his comments about tennis balls trying to act with that do you think that is applicable to this kind of story or why can the actors from king kong react to those projections better than what some people can react to on a green screen or a tennis ball that they can use in modern day CGI. Well, I think in this case, part of it was that they were working with this kind of puppet. So it almost made it seem more real. And just on a little bit of a side uh, note, one of my favorite fun facts about the film is that Faye Ray had said in the scenes where she's in Kong's hands, she said that those were her actual screaming. It wasn't a recording because of the way it was staged. She was high up and placed in this kind of machine built like an arm. So when they had clasped it around her, she would start to scream. But she said the more that she was acting as if she was in Kong's hands, she was struggling the grip on the fingers would start to get loose. So it looked like she felt like she was actually going to fall out of the hands. So I think it almost played into this kind of being real, even though you knew it was fake. It was this kind of heightened circumstance almost. And I think in the other situations, it wasn't as much of a green screen issue is the fact that they were almost, they were in this land. They, you know, one of the things I remember um, from drama school is we used to have this technique where we would kind of, before a scene, sit on the stage and look at the setting, play around with it, immerse yourself in the world. And I think with them, because of the way the set was designed, they were in this archaeo jungle that they were actually immersed in the world as opposed to just like a green screen on the back. There was this jungle-esque feeling when they're in there. So it kind of heightens your circumstances, elevates your acting because you can really feel yourself being in there and trapped in this exotic area. Right. And then actually, you know what it kind of reminded me of? And it's so interesting how we talk about this on, on the show, how things just kind of repeat. Mm-hmm. We're essentially seeing that with Disney and the Star Wars productions right now. Yeah. With, their, with whatever that is called, I can't remember what the soundstage kind of thing is called. With all the screens around it, they're essentially going back to what Willis H. O'Brien developed. And that's using projections and creating the world around you in order to get away from that idea of CGI, kind of not being able to fully immerse yourself within a role, within a space, within that role. Yeah. You're not you're not able to live your truth within that role without the circumstances surrounding that person, that character that you're living, that you're trying to be a part of. And we are continually going back to these themes that Mm – we can still re- interact and react to things around us, although it might not be generally quote unquote real. It can still give a sense of reality to the people that are viewing it. One of the strongest themes is this fight of the so-called primitive versus the so-called technologically advanced and the yes. struggle those two camps are still in today. What are the themes that you took away from the film? 
Well, that was definitely one of the biggest ones, this kind of nature versus man, especially as soon as Kong is in, in, in the New York City world where he has left his home, this kind of jungle versus urban area. That was the biggest thing for me. And, and it was just so jarring because it's, it's almost like he's a fish out of water. And then one of the other big themes I was thinking about was man's desire to exploit, we can call it, is that this greed, this almost like denim is perfect for this. It says, I don't care what happens as long as I get what I want. And it kind of encapsulates what 1% of the world was doing at that time in 1933. You know, we were still in the Great Depression. A majority of people were destitute. They were trying to find work and get money. Whereas this guy's like, I don't care about anything. I just want my stuff. And it just kind of brought back nowadays this kind of this classism that we have going on in the world. And even just a, a little bit of back then, the, another theme I thought about was the whole colonialism. These people going into this other world, this kind of othering and maligning it, using it for exploitation still. So those are some of the big ones that stuck out for me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that one of the biggest ones, especially if you watch the Peter Jackson's 2005 remake mm -hmm. of King Kong, who I'll get into him in a little bit, yeah. but it really drives home how greed is the root of all violence and mm -hmm. all evil. When you look at this character of Denim, yes, he has this driven kind of – the film opens up with him and how crazy he is and how mm -hmm. this and that. He's a he's this great adventurer, but stop he's also nothing. this – He's a – yeah, stop at nothing kind of guy, much to the chagrin of everybody else around him. So it's interesting that it's also kind of commentary on like, oh, yeah, we have these people in our society that all they want is the things for themselves, and yet we still kind of – kowtow to them all the time until we actually find out who they actually really are mm -hmm. when they reveal themselves and who they really are and how we're like his famous saying it was beauty killed the beast. greed is what kills man on top of the greed to make it so much more applicable when you're talking about the idea of colonialism and how that is still a thing that is very much going on when you look at the war for Africa right now um, that yeah. is happening. Rising climate change, native communities and their way of life are being constantly threatened mm -hmm. and still being looked as primitive when there are reasons as to why their cultures are still surviving to this day, as a lot of these kind of cultures are. And it's interesting to see how people interact to this film um, and how they react to a lot of the negative stereotypings that they have throughout the film. Yes, it's brilliant in its technical revolutionary and, and its technicalness of it all, of the of the advances. way it changed the media, the way, yeah, technical technological advances. But at the same time, of course, with a lot of these films, there are things. Yeah, nineteen thirty-three. Um, a lot of things are happening in that point as well, and fortunately, still happening today. But a lot of the things that we talk about are because we don't learn from our popular culture of the past. When you were watching King Kong. What popular cultural touchstones came to your mind? One of the things that stood out to me was New York. It's kind of weird, but let me explain. To me, King Kong is one of those films that just encapsulates New York. Like when you think of New York in movies, King Kong is up there with like, you know, An Affair to Remember or um, like Wall Street. Like, it's just New York is almost like a character in the film. 
And what it almost represents to me, you know, you and I were both New Yorkers. So it's kind of this lasting impact that, you know, obviously that scene of him on top of the Empire State Building is entrenched in every film montage that you see. It's almost interesting to kind of see it in its full length of the film to see where it leads up to that point, but also to see, oh, this was the starting point where films would copy it and parodies would be made of it and how it's become this kind of pop culture moment. And I think if I'm correct, I went to the Empire State Building years ago. If I'm correct, they have like a little King Kong while you're waiting online <laughs> that you can take your picture with. So That's it's great. even ingrained in the history there, yeah. That's great. I mean, it, first of all, how dare you assume that I'm a New York person? How dare oh. you? I am born and bred in New Jersey and I will oh. never, no, I'm kidding. Since its release, King Kong has influenced essentially every form of media, not just film. One of the best quotes that sums up Kong's legacy is from the legendary science fiction author, Ray Bradbury, who said, Amazing. a mob of boys went quietly mad across the world, then fled to the light to become adventurers, explorers, zookeepers, and filmmakers. And whenever you see somebody, whether it be Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, we mentioned them before, so many other, probably Guillermo del Toro, all these great actors and directors were super influenced by this. Fantasy and science fiction as genres and kaiju films could yeah. not be possible without Kong. The nearly countless Godzilla movies that we have. Willis H. O'Brien had this idea, King Kong versus Frankenstein in 1935, I want to say. One of the agents that was dealing with that uh, decided I'm going to yank that from him. I'm going to steal that from under him, underneath him, give it to the people, uh, give it to Toho Studios in Japan after Godzilla came out and have Godzilla versus King Kong. Wow. You couldn't have Star Wars, as we said, as we said before. Again, one of my, I will try to plug <laughs> this next thing I'm going to talk about forever because it <laughs> changed my life forever. The Lord of the Rings trilogy constantly uses all of these techniques where you use the combination of physical and camera tricks as well. Jackson's whole career would not have happened without Kong. He saw it when he was 11 years old. There's a thing on YouTube that you can look at where he introduces the film. He said 11 years old and he's like, I immediately, like yourself, Matt, wanted to figure out how they did this movie. How the heck did they get this all together? How did they get this giant gorilla in the frame and all this kind of stuff? He went out and made, made a stop motion movie immediately. Kong is used in Ready Player One, Fairly Odd Parents, The Simpsons, the Lego Batman movie, Metal Gear Solid 2 features discourse on which building Kong ascended to, and of course, as we said before, one of the most recognizable characters today, Donkey Kong. Even though King Kong is regarded as this groundbreaking work, it's not without its faults, as we talked about, uh, and is discussed often as a film that is overloaded with racist stereotypes and subliminal messaging, which yeah. is still being discussed today, especially in our political cultural climate, when it was featured in Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Watching the films, you can almost you can almost sense the undertone of it. I think within that lens, we can definitely see more and more people talking about this film within the context of our generation. So why do you think millennials and the younger generation should watch King Kong? History repeats itself. So for me, one reason to watch it is to see 
where all of these films that we like nowadays, like Jurassic Park, Godzilla, Creature from the Black Lagoon, like they all stem from the creation of the stop motion effects and animation from King Kong. So it's almost like, look and see where we got all that from. Look at the spectacle of it. And then in the other sense, it's kind of a, a way to get people to watch like older film and appreciate it and see like, this is where it began. This is how films were made. And it's almost, look at the originality of it too. The fact that movies that we watch now come from this come from King Kong, those adventure films we like, romances, action. King Kong has all of that. And it was one of those original films. And it was the first to, this is kind of a side note, it was one of the first to have a non-diegetic film score. And I think that the music of it just captivates you in it, in the oh, feeling yeah. of it. Kind of, and it's almost a reason to like, you've seen that scene of Kong holding Anne on the top of the Empire State Building. like. Watch the film, like see how we get to that point where you can fully get emotionally invested in it. Watching that scene, I felt so bad for Kong. I wasn't expecting it, but I was like, the humans treated him so terribly. And I was just sad to see him just kind of basically get killed. And it was like, I want people to feel the way like I felt about it. And I just think anyone who is interested in film, this is a must. But to others, I think it's a great way to get people to watch older films because there is an in, because it's like a known, King Kong is a known name. So maybe it'll pique someone's interest and like, oh, like this is the original, let's let's watch it. Let's see, you know, we saw Kong Skull Island a couple of years ago. Like, let's see how it started. Bridging the gap between some of those non-viewers, people that wouldn't be interested in watching older classic films and to getting them to watching it. And it's actually, they watch it, an hour and 40 minutes, they love it, and it's like, hey, these films aren't that bad. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion I had with Matt about one of the most influential films ever made, King Kong. I had a great time talking with Matt and hope to have him on the show again sometime soon. Please check out Real Gold Rundown on TikTok and Instagram and give Matt some love. If you want to check out some more of my work, and want to watch the film we discussed, you can check out dlumoviereview.com and my YouTube channel. All you have to do is search Cinemillennials and you'll find it. Thank you.